0: Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Breachside Broadcast, home of the finest foxcasting either side of the breach. Malifaux is a city full of strange inhabitants and dangerous inhuman creatures. But the beasts who inhabit the frontier lands around Malifaux can be even stranger and more terrifying. Animals, like people, can be very territorial and do not take kindly to intruders in their homes. What's more, these beasts sometimes have a role to play in the ongoing war between the Arcanists and the Guild, as tonight's story demonstrates. I hope you enjoy part one of High Noon, right after this word from our sponsor. This episode of the Breachside Broadcast is brought to you by Furry Friends Pet Store. Bring home a cuddly creature straight from the bayou or the badlands. Why not bring home a baby gator for the kids? What could possibly go wrong? Or maybe a Malifaux Raptor. They make great companion animals as long as you're careful not to let them peck your eyes out. Fairy Friends Pet Store is not responsible for any injuries caused by a new pet.
1: By Noon by Graham Stevenson The night air carried many scents. The familiar dry bunchgrass and the dust lifted by mountain winds were the scents of home, as was the rangy warm odour of the beast lying at his side, panting in the slow rhythm of sleep. The presence of ozone from the storm far to the west was fainter, but just as familiar. Not every scent brought him comfort, though, the sharp tang of sweating men invaded his yurt, and the acrid stink of lime cement and gunpowder clung to his body like a taint. Marcus turned his head, and spat to try and clear the taste of guild from his mouth, but it was useless. He understood that they could not be dislodged so easily, but as the leech will relinquish its hold to escape the naked flame, so he had set in motion a plan to break the guild's hold on this land and drive them back to their nest in Malifaux. The wind brought him a new scent, and Marcus recognized an agent of that plan approaching. The heavy shape pushed through the yurt's entrance and crouched on the far side of the fire, which had burned down to a circle of glowing ash. The visitor brought with it the smell of deep places, of earth and stone. They regarded one another for a time, the newcomer's tiny eyes squinting and uncertain, even in this soft orange light. It moved as close as it dared, its posture one of abject servitude, and deposited a small chunk of bedrock on the blanket before Marcus's crossed legs. The arcanist lifted the stone. It was cold to the touch, a deep chill that only came from countless ages beyond the reach of the sun. Good, he said. The creature retreated, as abruptly as it had arrived, leaving behind crumbs of earth and imprints of its broad, spade-like feet. Marcus squeezed the stone in his fist and stepped out of his yurt, looking down on the flickering amber pinpricks of torchlight on the plain, far below his mountain. The guild leeches were running out of time, whether they knew it or not. Good, he said again. Colonel, the guardsman said, throwing a salute as he opened the carriage door. Colonel Noon climbed down slowly, not anxious to have the shine of his boots dulled by the reddish brown film that coated the guardsman's sentry and everything else in these sun blasted northern hills. He preferred the cobbles of Malafo, especially just after a hard rainstorm, when the stones were dark and lustrous and clean. His steam carriage had been turned into an oven by the long journey north and his dress, shirt, and cap was sodden. Any hope of a refreshing breeze vanished as soon as he emerged from the baking interior. The winds that scoured the hills were as hot as the metal skin of his carriage, and the only thing that brushed his sweating skin was dust. His mood soured further when he saw the fort. After three months, it still looked far from completed. The construction was nowhere near as advanced as it should have been, considering the resources and manpower that had been shipped north. The perimeter wall was mostly finished, as was the first floor of the main building, but the upper floor, buttresses and watchtowers, were still timber skeletons, surrounded by untidy piles of masonry. The labourer camp stretched for a quarter mile to the south. A warren of grubby tents, latrine trenches and cook fires, ringed by the larger guild garrison tents, The guardsmen on sentry duty around the build site had shed their overcoats and instead walked their patrol routes in shirts and breeches, goggles and bandanas protecting their eyes and mouths from the swirling dust. Colonel Noon had seen his share of sloppy guardsmen, but he had perception enough to look beyond the uniform violation and see that these men were alert and frightened. They patrolled in groups of three or more, and though they were covered in dust, Their rifle breaches glinted with freshly cleaned and oiled steel. Nor did a single guardsman have his weapon slung over his shoulder. Each man carried his rifle at port arms, and his head rotated constantly. They were expecting trouble. The laborers were just as edgy. In Noon's experience, construction workers were traditionally noisy procrastinators who spent their day maintaining the illusion of industry. These men were silent and hurried about their business with an air of desperation. They had obviously reached the conclusion that the sooner the job was finished, the sooner they could leave this place. Where is Captain Bridger? he asked. In a command tent, sir, the guardsman replied, indicating the largest tent on the far side of the construction site, where a guild flag rippled in the hot wind. He's expecting you. Noon worked his way around the camp, ignoring salutes thrown from passing patrols, surveying the construction up close. The interior of the fort was an empty shell of unplastered stone, and the floor was still dirt. Teams of men with shovels were burrowing down into the dry ground, while others brought barrows loaded with slabs. When he reached the command tent, he threw the flap aside and stepped into a heat not unlike his steam carriage. He had to take a moment for his eyes to adjust. Colonel, a voice said, and a shadow rose from behind a folding desk, which resolved itself into a short, paunchy man in a captain's uniform as his vision recovered from the sun's glare. Captain Bridger, he said, returning his subordinate's salute. For once the reports were not wrong. You're even further behind than I realized. The captain looked unapologetic, instead gesturing to a leather case propped on his bunk. A drink, Colonel? Water. The tin mug was dented, and the water was room temperature, but Noon swallowed it with relish. He accepted a refill and drank it with equal gusto, while Captain Bridger waited patiently. So tell me, Noon said, wiping his mouth. The report's advised of animal attacks. We're under siege, Bridger said simply. My men are on sentry duty for up to eighteen hours at a time, and any sleep they might get between duties is interrupted. Mounted lions and maulers attack the labor camp most nights, sometimes two or three times over the course of a single evening. We risk losing laborers every night. The men are exhausted. Why not change the shift patterns to let the guards sleep during the day? The colonel asked. Oh, they attack us during the day, too, Bridges said with a smile. But they're more frequent at night. "'You've posted sentries?' "'Around the perimeter wall, yes. "'But somehow they keep getting into the compound.' "'What about sharpshooters? "'You have an elevated position to command the surrounding terrain.' "'Raptors,' Bridges said. "'Birds of prey. "'They blind anyone that climbs as high as the scaffold on the watchtower. "'I lost four snipers and five times that in laborers "'before I ordered a halt to the upper story's construction. "'The raptors haven't been back since.' Unacceptable, Noon said. The Watchtower would grant us a huge tactical advantage. It must be completed. Where do the raptors nest? The mountain, Bridger said, nodding to the northwest. Then send a patrol and destroy their nests. I've sent two, Bridger responded flatly. Neither came back. Noon toyed with the empty tin mug, thinking... It seems we're at war with more than just the local wildlife. His musing was interrupted by shrieking. He pushed open the tent flap and saw two laborers staggering from the fort's interior, swinging lengths of brown rope while the others scattered. They weren't ropes. They were snakes. Rattlesnakes. Dozens of them. Clinging to the arms and throats of the two laborers while more swarmed from the fort's interior. To his surprise, the closest patrol raised their rifles and shot the two men dead, then pitched smoking clay jugs into the fort. There was a whoof and fire jetted from the open stone doorway. Rattlesnakes keep nesting in the earth under the fort, Bridger said. Young ones. They curl just beneath the surface, and when the laborers try to clear the ground to lay floor slabs, they attack. The men call them rattle bombs. The only sure way to clean them out is to burn them. And these two, Noon indicated the dead laborers. Death by their venom is excruciating. Trust me, this way is better. The fire was dying, being replaced with clouds of choking black smoke and the faint popping and crackling of roasted meat. Terrified laborers brandishing shovels began to creep back towards the fort. We find rattle bombs every few days, I've never seen snakes in such profusion before, nor so aggressive, the captain said. It's almost as though the land is conspiring against us. This fort must be finished, Noon replied. That much was obvious, and not just to justify the expense and loss of life in getting this far. These northern regions had long been a breeding ground for arcanists, and guild intelligence placed a safe house somewhere in the area, from which a number of raids had been launched as well as providing shelter and support to Arcanist fugitives. "'It'll be finished,' Bridger agreed. "'But I need more men. "'I've lost a third of my strength through a combination of the animal attacks and sickness from the water.' "'The water?' Noon glanced at his empty cup. "'We started digging a well the first day we camped. "'This entire region is riddled with narrow fissures through the bedrock that filter water from the mountains.' There were underground water deposits cleaner than anything you'll find in the city. At first the water was fine. Then it began to come up from the well yellow and sulfurous smelling. It had become contaminated somehow. We had nothing else to drink until scouts found a river fifteen miles to the west, and a number of the men got sick. Now we have to send a wagon on a thirty-mile round trip for fresh water. And it gets ambushed every day. Colonel Noon put down his cup, beginning to realize that Bridger had been doing a better job of commanding the outpost than he'd first thought. "'The animal meat is the same,' the captain continued. "'At first I gave orders for the lions and maulers we killed to be slaughtered and cooked. I thought it would be a morale boost for the men, and a change from canned rations, but the meat was bad. A few even died before we realized what was poisoning them.' "'What do you do with the carcasses now?' I had a pit dug about a half mile from the camp and lined it with lime from the construction site. We dragged the corpses there. He smiled absently. It's downwind, so most days you can't smell it. There's that many. We shoot perhaps five lions a week, and maybe two maulers. I have no idea where they're coming from, but the entire mountain range must be emptied by now. The lime pit is piled twenty feet high in places. Arcanist interference had been lurking behind the reports from the outpost, and now that Noon could see it with his own eyes, their presence here was irrefutable. Such unnatural animal behavior could only point to one thing. Marcus. "'You'll get what you need,' he said to the captain. "'I requisitioned another hundred guardsmen, along with a dozen hunters and two peacekeepers before I left Malifo. They'll be here within the week.' And then we'll see how Marker's claws fare against Guild Steel. You're certain it's him? It's him, Noon said. And if I can shake him loose, this trip might prove to be profitable after all. That's one pelt I'd like to mount above my fireplace. The Colonel straightened his collar and stepped back out into the sun's embrace, saying over his shoulder, I'll need twenty men. The captain followed him outside, in daylight, the deep lines of his fatigue were evident. Twenty men? The miners and steamfitters union have an iron smelting works to the east of here, at the base of the mountain. That's right, sir. Rust Creek. We've done a little trading with them for tools and brazier coal. i have the men assembled by my steam coach in ten minutes. I want to get there before I lose the light. Also, send a messenger to meet with reinforcements, and tell them what we're dealing with. I don't understand, sir. You've been on the back foot for too long, Captain. It's time to take the initiative. The Union is up to its hips in Arcanist treason, providing them with support and safe refuge right under our noses. Marcus is here, and someone at that facility will know how to find him. Once I have that information, I'll take the reinforcements up the mountain and bring back his head. I trust your construction will be smooth enough after that. Wilberforce had his reservations about antagonizing the Guild before the bestial terrorism of the new fort began, and certainly long before the bulky steam carriage creaked and hissed its way uphill to the Rust Creek ironworks. He watched with growing consternation as armed guardsmen spread out on both sides of the carriage while it rumbled its way into the yard, clunking over the sunken cart rails. Wilberforce had been managing Rust Creek for six years. And in that time, it had been approached by Arcanist agents on many occasions. Beneath his office were the refinery and blast furnaces, and a short way up the slope from them was the mine head, where they dug out the iron sulfide. At the entrance to that mine was a small steel door that was kept locked at all times. It was marked with an explosives warning, but Wilberforce knew that what was kept behind that door was potentially far more damaging. At least with respect to the reputation of the Miners and Steamfitters Union. A persistent investigator wouldn't find a store of explosives, but rather a narrow staircase cut into the rock that led almost a hundred feet down into the mountain's flank. The staircase gave way to a low, lantern lit tunnel that staked and branched a dozen times. Assuming the investigators' persistence held past a dozen dead ends and double backs, they might eventually find the Arcanist's safe house. Where some of the guilds most wanted awaited either the easing of their persecution or instructions. Wilberforce had done his best to ignore this particular aspect of working for the Miners and Steamfitters Union. He'd never been a revolutionary, and while he had no love for the guild, nor was he especially offended by their policies. He was a pragmatic man, with good logistical and metallurgical skills, and tried not to get involved in the politics of Malifaux if they could be avoided. There was no avoiding the guild vehicle that was rolling to a stop beneath his office window, however. A colonel dismounted from the smoking vehicle, mopped his brow with a stained kerchief, and glanced around, his expression carefully controlled. The men he had with him looked on the ragged edge, red-eyed and unkempt, unusual for guild guardsmen. They had to be from the fort, where the siege was grinding into its third month. He hurried downstairs, snapping at the men around the furnaces to continue working, and hoping that their resentful stares would not be noticed by the Colonel. "'Welcome, sir,' he said as he approached, fastening his waistcoat and smoothing his starched collar. The corrugated walls of the refinery building were effective at deflecting the worst of the heat from the sun, but the furnaces saw to it that only a heavy application of starch kept his shirts in a serviceable condition for more than a few hours at a time.' And you are? the colonel asked, ignoring Wilberforce's outstretched gesture of friendship. Facility manager Thomas Wilberforce, he replied. I'm in charge here. Of the smelting works? Of the refinery and the mine, Wilberforce elaborated. This facility is part of the Miners and Steamfitters Union. Yes, I know, cut in the colonel. How many employers do you have here? About a dozen refinery workers,' said Wilberforce. "'And perhaps two dozen or so miners. "'We are a small outfit, but self-sufficient.' "'Gather your staff, Mr. Wilberforce,' the Colonel said. "'I'm closing you down.' "'Closing?' "'Wilberforce thought he must have heard the Guild officer wrong. "'I don't understand.' "'Until such times as it can be proved this facility is not offering any support to the outlawed arcanist movement, all activity will be stopped immediately.' Please arrange to have your employees confined to their living quarters, whereupon I will post guards to keep them there. Just a second, Colonel. This is a civilian facility, privately owned and run by MNSU. I don't recognize that you have any authority to give me orders. Furthermore, does your jurisdiction even qualify this far from Malifaux? I have twenty armed men here, Mr. Wilberforce, the Colonel said pleasantly. I have another hundred and fifty back at the fort. How much more authority do you think I need? I need to inform MNSU headquarters about this immediately, Wilberforce said. This is a violation of... That won't be necessary, the colonel said, and waved a finger. One of the guardsmen grabbed Wilberforce's starched collar and hold him to his tiptoes. Why don't we go back to your office for a little chat while I round up your staff? Wilberforce found himself being dragged back the way he'd come, while the guardsmen began brandishing their rifles and shouting at the staring workforce. Wilberforce regarded the smashed, sparking Vox unit miserably. Even though he would never have been able to get a transmission out under the scrutiny of this guild colonel, there were enough employees that were loyal to the arcanists for someone to have sneaked in here to alert the others. As it was, there had been several outbreaks of violence when the guildsmen corralled his employees. Several had been shot, and many more clubbed with rifle butts before they had relinquished. The remainder were locked in their bunkhouses with guardsmen watching every entrance while Wilberforce sat on a stool on the wrong side of his desk, wrists tied, watching the colonel relax in his chair. "'That's better,' the colonel said. "'Now we can talk.' Behind him, the guardsmen were pulling open drawers of files and tipping everything onto the floor. "'What are you looking for?' "'They'll know when they see it,' the colonel said evasively. "'What can you tell me about Marcus?' Wilberforce's throat dried up. He had heard from various agents that Marcus was in charge of the operation in the region, but they had neglected to furnish him with any further information, such as where to find him or exactly what his plan was. In retrospect, that was the way Wilberforce preferred it. Maintaining a distance from Arcanist activity allowed him to sleep at night, and turning a blind eye to anything that came into his proximity, such as the steel door, "'kept his involvement to a tolerable minimum. "'I don't know what you're talking about,' he said. "'Of course not,' nodded the Colonel. "'Where can we find him?' "'I don't know what you're talking about,' Wilberforce repeated. "'I understand. "'Is he on the mountain?' "'Wilberforce shook his head. "'Colonel,' he began. "'How would you prefer me to proceed, Mr. Wilberforce?' asked the Colonel. I am of the opinion that you know both who Marcus is and where I can find him. Unfortunately for you, whether you actually possess this information is a moot point. I intend to extract everything you know about Marcus and the Arcanist movement. Are you with me so far? He clearly took Wilberforce's confusion as an assent. Because he continued. "'I would prefer you to give me the information I want now. "'If you insist on being stubborn, "'I will cut a piece off you for each guardsman we have lost "'during the course of Marcus' siege "'until you tell me what I want. "'Fingers, toes, ears, lips. "'I'm sure you get the idea.' "'Wilberforce's heart was accelerating rapidly as his anxiety rose. "'Colonel, you must understand.' "'This is what is going to happen, Mr. Wilberforce,' the colonel cut in. "'Just or unjust, the die has been cast. "'You can, of course, continue this pretense, "'but it will soon become extremely painful to maintain, I assure you.' "'Wilberforce was not a hardened darkness fanatic. "'He had deliberately kept the movement at arm's length all his working life, "'and any loyalty he felt he owed them fled at the sight of the colonel "'drawing a long and keen-edged bayonet from his boot.' And resting it on Wilberforce's desk. So, do you have anything you would like to tell me before we begin? the colonel asked. Wilberforce began to babble as fast as his tongue would allow. Marcus stood on the rock promontory, looking down at the refinery. The screaming had long since stopped, but the sharp odor of blood took much longer to fade. He had never met the Rust Creek facility manager, and felt no particular sorrow at his passing. Ramos had spoken of him several times, and had left the impression he was good at his job, but did little to support their true cause in the war against the Guild. He would be easily replaced. His sharp eyes picked out a small knot of guardsmen emerging from the shadow of the minehead. They held a struggling captive. The facility manager knew nothing about Marker's plan, but he did know the location of the safehouse, which he had evidently spilled to the guild commander who had arrived this morning. A bolt of blinding blue energy arced across the refinery yard, and one of the guardsmen spun away in flames. A rifle butt swung and the remaining guardsmen dragged the unconscious arcanist out of sight. Marcus knew who they had. One of Ramos' lieutenants, a fiery young talent called Bixby Gaul. He had burned a guild munitions warehouse to the ground, and assassinated two high-ranking officials in a single anarchic evening. Ramos had smuggled him out of Malifaux and hid him here in the hope of shaping the young man's aggression to further their cause. They'd held several councils since his arrival and it was very likely that Ramos had told him about Marcus' presence here. The boy's hatred of the guild would be a formidable obstacle, but eventually he would break, and the guild commander would come for Marcus. Well, let him. Marcus could see everything from the top of the mountain, even the inching shadow of guild reinforcements moving north. His plan was nearly ready, and when it was sprung, He would wipe all trace of the enemy from his land. If the guild commander hurried up, he might arrive in time to watch it before his throat was ripped out. Noon was cleaning his bayonet with a scrap of cloth when the sergeant came into the office, snapped a salute and tried to keep his eyes off the bloodied meat scattered about the floor. You wanted me, sir? Send two men back to the fort with a message for Captain Bridger. I need another twenty men. Tell him to send them immediately. I'm going up the mountain after the arcanist renegade Marcus at first light tomorrow. The sergeant hesitated. That's a good portion of our remaining strength, sir. The reinforcements will be arriving any time now. I'm sure Bridger can hang on a little longer until they reach us. Very good, sir. When the sergeant had gone, Noon contemplated the jumbled parts of the floorboards. Wilberforce had crumbled instantly. As he had known he would. He had fallen over himself in his eagerness to cooperate. Noon had cut him to pieces afterward to ensure that nothing had been held back, and was confident he'd extracted everything of use. The young arcanist had been a much tougher proposition. There had been a fire of youthful zealotry in his eyes that had taken a long time to douse, and Noon had been forced to call for hot irons from the furnaces to finish the job. He was not a sadist by nature, and took no pleasure from the methods used to extract information, but instead viewed his actions as a means to an end. Why throw these two in chains to languish indefinitely at the Guild's expense while lawyers tried to cajole and bargain the information out of them? Noon's way was quicker. The boy had known enough. Marcus' camp was high on the mountain, on a promontory the miners called El Dedo. He had been there since construction on the fort had begun, directing his beasts down the mountain to attack the guardsmen. The boy had also said his only companion was a huge saber-toothed Cerberus. Otherwise, he was completely alone up there. Noon wasn't so stupid as to accept this at face value, but from what he knew of Marcus... The idea of such a proud individual maintaining a relatively solitary existence felt right. Twenty men would be more than enough to deal with one arcanist and his three-headed cat. By this time tomorrow, Marcus would be dead. The plain animals would go back to being animals, and he could get the fort's construction back on schedule. Once their resupply base was complete, the guild would systematically root out every trace of arcanist activity and destroy it and he could return home to adulation and a promotion. He sheathed his bayonet, lifted his coat, and went in search of someone to clean the blood off his boots.
0: That's it for another episode of the Breachside Broadcast. Join us next time for the conclusion of High Noon.